you're listening to a podcast by Hip Fee Hype, where we discuss new ideas around housing, sustainability, and climate action to explore ways to support the sustainable growth of our cities and regions. I'm Laura Phillips, and I'm the head of urban advocacy at Hip Fee Hype. Hip Fee Hype is an entrepreneurial group of businesses that are working to resolve more sustainable, more socially responsible, and more intuitive solutions to our cities. There are 80,000 people on the wait list for social housing in Victoria, with the state having the lowest proportion of social housing relative to total housing stock in Australia. It is estimated that the Victorian government would need to build 6,000 new social housing units a year for a decade to make up for the shortage. Women are significantly impacted by a severe shortage in needs-based housing, with a lack of safe, secure housing entrenching socioeconomic instability for women fleeing domestic violence, as well as for single mothers and older women in particular. Today I sit down with Liam Wallace, Director of Hippie Hype, and Jeanette Large, CEO of Women's Property Initiatives, to discuss the scale of the needs-based housing crisis and ways in which it can be addressed. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Hey, Laura. A little bit of stating the obvious, but from your perspective, Jeanette, how severe is the needs-based housing crisis in Australia at the moment? So I think you've outlined some of the statistics, uh, Laura, with uh, 82,000 plus uh, people on the Victorian Housing Register. Not only do we have the lowest social housing per capita, we also in Victoria have the lowest expenditure per capita in Victoria, which is pretty amazing, I think, when you might think that Victoria is uh, is a state that you would think was more advanced. So for um, our organisation, we're focusing on women-headed households. There are the majority of uh, people approaching homelessness services are women who have escaped family violence, women and children who have escaped family violence. For Victoria, from the 2011 census to the 2016 census, across Australia, the increase in older women experiencing homelessness was 33%. In Victoria, it was 67%. So some of the things that you've uh, outlined in your introduction, uh, you know, the, the, the state of the need for housing generally, the need for housing for women is paramount. Hmm. Where, where, where are these people living, Jeanette? So if we're hmm. talking about the um, older women in housing, and I'd have to say that the figures are probably uh, underestimated yeah. because many of the older women still wouldn't acknowledge or recognise themselves as being homeless if they're living in a, you know, with, on a friend's couch or with their children or something like that. So there's a mixture of where they, le- where they live. And I think that traditional thought of, well, your homeless person is the rough sleeper and usually male on the street is really incorrect. There's a lot of homelessness out there that is not visible to our community. And it is people who are living in crisis accommodation, transitional housing, with friends, with family, in overcrowded situations. So many, many places, uh, and they truly are homeless. And I suppose how have you experienced the scale of the crisis through the work of WPI? Maybe you explain a little bit more about the organisation and how, and how you intersect with that. Look, women's, women's property initiatives, we develop and provide affordable rental housing for women-headed households. So that might be single women and, or women with children. And the properties we own are one and two bedroom apartments and three and four bedroom houses throughout metropolitan Melbourne. We'd like to go 
broader throughout Victoria, but at this stage it's metropolitan Melbourne. So I actually worked for a, a women's homelessness service, managed a women's homelessness service for nine years before moving into women's property initiatives. My key excitement in moving into the organisation I'm with now is that it was providing long-term housing because the Women's Homelessness Service, we were providing transitional housing supposedly for three to six months. We had women who were staying two years plus. I hear now that women are staying even longer in those uh, you know, uh, short-term accommodation and it's, it's just not okay and it's because they have no long-term housing to move to. When you're talking about the crisis services, the, the family, family violence services, the women are getting good, safe accommodation for a short period of time. If they have nowhere else to go to and they want to put a roof over their heads, a roof over their children's heads, they're returning to homes that are unsafe. They're returning to relationships that are violent just to keep a roof over their heads. And it's not okay. So. Many people keep saying we need to invest in more short-term housing, crisis housing. We need it. We absolutely need it for that immediate crisis, but we need the long-term housing for them to move into, and every crisis service would say that as well. And I suppose as you touched on, you know, there's, there's such kind of ongoing and, I suppose, flow-on effects from, from those issues when people fall through the cracks and then it kind of, you know, balloons out into maybe funding services for domestic violence, et cetera, which are also necessary, but so much can be solved from, from a housing perspective kind of first off. Um, what link do you see, and maybe kind of, Liam, you can kind of, maybe from your experience too, between kind of access to secure housing and, and increased socioeconomic opportunities for women? Enormous links. <laughs> we, I mean, we've actually had independent evaluations that, you know, they're referred to as social returns on investment. Mm. We've had two undertaken for our organisation to measure the impact of the homes that we're providing. And the first one we had uh, undertaken in 2009 when we, I think we only owned about 17 houses at that stage. And it was for the social and economic outcomes, if you're interested in a dollar value, it was for every dollar invested, it created the value of $3.11. It highlighted the importance of the improvement in the emotional and physical health of the women and children, the improvement in the academic performance of the children, the fact that the women were obtaining work, uh, the fact that they were obtaining better family relationships, social attachments, some were you know, getting their licence, going back to, to university or um, tertiary education, connecting with their communities, contributing to their communities. The outcomes were amazing. We then had a second completely independent, um, again, of a social return on investment undertaken. The second time round with more properties, at that stage I think we had 65 or something, the outcome was $11.07 for every dollar invested. So it... and. This is measuring for the women and children, it's measuring for government, it's measuring for community, it's across the board. And the other thing that it really um, resounded for me was it contributed to breaking that generational cycle of poverty. And we know that. We've got children from the women that were housing who are going to university now. It's fantastic. So the outcomes for everyone is fantastic. Yeah, the outcomes are... You know, spe speaking from personal experience, I, you know, mum and I grew up. Mum was mum was a single mum school teacher, and um, 
you know, we, we were lucky enough to, for, for, for you know, my, my grandfather um, to, to help with the purchases of, of a home for us as a little family unit when I was small. And, you know, you, you, that enabled mum to build, you know, a relationship with our neighbours who ultimately, you know, had a, had a son of a similar age to me and that, that enabled mum to go to work on a full-time basis and essentially, you know, our neighbour was able to look after me and, and my friend, you know, before school, after school. So, you'd, you know, you'd, you've sort of, like, from my perspective, had that direct experience of, well, if we didn't necessarily have that stable base, you know, how, how would a single mum in that day and age have gone about kind of, you know, um, being able to, to continue working and, 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 and for me to have found some sort of kind of reliable, stable base and you, you can you know like you can definitely understand that in a tangible sense mm. i guess um mm. how important those social connections are that stability uh, i know when i started with this organization i went out to meet some of the tenants and uh one uh young she was on a curriculum day actually and i was just talking to her and, and the delight in her face because she said to me I'm going to be able to walk to school mm. with the same friends mm. until I finish school. Mm. She hadn't, you know, it, she had never ever experienced it mm. before. Some of the women before their house with us, you know, they've moved six six or more times within twelve months. Mm. That's that, too much. Yeah, that transition yeah. was just too much. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I suppose, I mean, from from both your perspectives, Liam, kind of being, I suppose, much more seated in the, in the private property market and then, Jeanette, from yours, what barriers do you see to increasing the supply of needs-based and affordable housing? Obviously, there's a huge kind of investment piece which is which is absent, but, you know, Liam, from your perspective currently, what barriers do you see from a, from a private market perspective? Oh, look, we're, we're on a journey, I guess, to understand the barriers the, 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 in more detail. Um, I think um, there seems to be this belief more broadly that the private sector can play a large role in the creation of kind of, you know, needs-based housing, affordable housing, social housing. I'm kind of not sure if it really stacks up the idea. It hasn't done a particularly good job of delivering the sort of volumes that we need to date anyway. Um, You know, some of the barriers that we're sort of seeing... Uh, emerge uh, through our research into the space of really wanting to use our skill set of being able to deliver high quality buildings number one more sustainably built buildings which you know is seeking to address you know broader issues around health and uh, and and also operational costs so better quality buildings costing less to operate over time being an important part of affordability Um, also the complexity of needs-based housing like buildings being built for specific needs so being able to deliver a slightly more complicated building is something we're really focused on as a business but you know how can we then make something that you know might be a little bit more complicated which is necessitates additional expense how do we make that then affordable and the only way you can do it is through subsidy right and the state has an interest in providing that subsidy i think the state's biggest challenge is is acting quickly enough uh in 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 order to uh, and acting with enough clarity and certainty for the private market to kind of actually um be able to deliver at scale and that, that to me seems to be one of the biggest challenges is, is um, you know, getting, getting enough clarity out of government as to what funding is available and when and how and, 
and doing that in a way that that process in its own right isn't significantly kind of is isn't a cost barrier um to to then enabling you know the delivery of 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 housing that meets the specific needs of different organizations it seems that you know funding comes with a lot of complexity and a lot of baggage and it takes way too long um the private market needs significantly more certainty and it needs to be able to act more quickly and you know that's probably a good segue to Jeanette because you know that's been my experience today and your experience is you know much more detailed and over a longer period of time (laughs) and uh, and yes you know I was actually just talking to Laura before about the lack of certainty um you know that the the government funding to increase community housing has just been so erratic over the years and we may have funding for you know two or three years in a row, and then it just can disappear for six. That there's no funding in there to increase um, the housing, community housing at all, or affordable housing in any way. And in speaking to people across a whole range of sectors, whether it be the private sector, community housing sector, the one thing that always comes through is that there needs to be government subsidy. There's a project, um, which I'm sure you're probably aware of, Liam, uh, that's been undertaken by PwC, the Constellation Project. Now, the Constellation Project, one of their focuses has been very much looking at unlocking private investment into providing housing, because yes, if we can get some private investment in there, they can probably deliver some housing at scale. But what they've come down to is, yes, there need to be tax benefits for the private investors, but there also needs to be an ongoing subsidy for the community housing sector to be able to deliver it properly. Mm. So there is no um, way out, as far as I'm concerned, from the commitment that is required from government. There are models that might require the government to be able to invest less. You know, if you can unlock investment through the private sector, then the government doesn't have to provide as much or invest as much, but they still have to invest something and they have to be committed to that. And I suppose it's that kind of initial kind of uh, commitment from government which will open doors to so much of these models that you've, you've suggested. So I suppose that leads on well to if there were any options that you saw as a, as a path forward for increased investment and, and policy support more broadly for need-based housing sector, I suppose both from a, a state and, and a federal level. Well, at the federal level, there isn't even a national housing strategy that exists. Um, We believe at the state level that there's going to be a stimulus package because of COVID-19 that's going to be announced very soon. But this is what also happened back in the days of the GFC. It's it's focused on when there's an economic crisis in the in our community, like rather a band-aid than, rather than an ongoing. Exactly. So yeah. it's creating employment. It's creating in, in, employment in the construction industry. Fantastic. That's really needed. But why can't we have? Why can't it be acknowledged that you need to have an ongoing stream to be providing affordable um, housing, community housing? whether there's an economic crisis or not, that you need to be providing people with good housing, the outcomes as a result of that is a no-brainer. And the thing, you know, the type of housing that Liam's referring to as well, from the community housing sector, if we can accommodate, from our point of view, women and their children in housing that's energy efficient, that's sustainable, the ongoing 
outcomes for them. When you're talking about affordable housing, it shouldn't just be looking at the rental income, you know, rental that they're paying. It should be looking at the other costs as well, decreased energy costs, close to public transport. All of those things are so important. And I suppose from a, you know physical and mental well-being as well in terms of having you know housing that is actually warm in winter, actually cool in summer, and yeah, it supports kind of more of a community cohesion as, as Liam mentioned before. Exactly. Mm. Yes. Yeah. You know, some of the, the the Nightingale projects and so forth are very much community focused. So supportive, such a supportive environment mm. to be housing the women and children in. Mm. Mm. And Liam, from your perspective, I think you know there's been kind of a lot of talk, I suppose, from kind of from a private market investment perspective, as, as Jeanette touched on, but also I suppose more talk about inclusionary zoning and how that would look for, from a private sector perspective. Mm. Do you, what do you see as the kind of a, a way forward that could contribute to solving this crisis? I think um, it's a really good question. You know, the housing issue seems to be at very least a state-based issue, um, probably a federal issue. But as we're seeing with COVID, you know, the, the Fed's hands are tied on so many issues that relate tangibly to people on the ground anyway, <laughs> in the way that we're seeing different states respond to COVID. Um, so it, re- it really probably does sit with the state. And, you know, the, the reality around the planning scheme is that at the moment, planning applications are, are assessed at a municipal level. And um, so often kind of local politics plays out in a way that, that might potentially prevent, you know, the kinds of housing we need in certain locations due to sort of broader ideas around nimbyism. So despite our best intentions, we want it over there, not here, um, which is problematic, right? Like a, a problem like this needs to, needs to be assessed outside of that sort of local political interference. Um, so then you sort of say, okay, well, what 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 levers can be pulled at a state level, um, you know, that that can sort of take these hands out of, uh, take these decisions out of the hands of council to actually implement the the level of scale of housing that's required, and how do we do that in a, in a really strategic way, and broader ideas around um, location, um, connection to jobs, community sustainability more broadly, you know. Like just off the top of my head, we've got this broad idea of building, you know, um, the outer rail loop, connecting up all of our education and hospital institutions. Maybe there's an opportunity there to to implement, you know, a social housing based initiative connected around that rail loop as well. <laughs> Maybe that's a 20, 30 year plan for Victoria. Maybe that's a big picture idea that we can start to think about how we build ourselves out of what will likely be, uh, you know, the greatest economic impact that we've seen for a century. Maybe we need this level of kind of big picture thinking that, you know, to, to the state government, the current state government's credit, they're, they're, they're willing to, to demo, they've demonstrated that they're willing to think that way. Really looking forward to seeing what comes out of this stimulus that's to be announced, but hopefully it's connected to something as, as big picture thinking as, as that, you know. It's, it's a problem, like you said, there's 80,000 dwellings that are required to get people out of this kind of short-term disconnected um, a cycle um, that's 6,000 dwellings over the next 10 years that's a that's a shitload of building um, and approvals and complexity um, and organizations that need to come together and collaborate and and you know private sector funding and banks that need to get involved with a lot of lawyers involved um, you, you know it's it's complicated we, we need to figure out how at a state level we can we, we can we can remove barriers 
it's a really interesting challenge. And unfortunately, I'd say that uh, the 80,000 is really an underestimation. There's many more who are eligible to be on that Victorian housing register who aren't, who, you know, just realise that they're not likely to get a house, so why bother? But as a result of, again, of COVID and the number of people who have lost employment and possibly won't be getting it back for quite some time, I think the issue that we're going to be faced with is is huge. Mm. You know, from my point of view, and I, you know, I don't know whether Liam would agree, but I just think the state government needs to introduce mandatory inclusionary zoning. Just absolutely. You know, it's just been years that I've been advocating for that. Mm. It's, you know, as I said, as long as my understanding is, as long as developers know up front, you know, that they don't have to do it on land that they might have already purchased and had done their feasibility on, they know up front they can do their financial modelling and their feasibility they'll accept it. Level playing field, they'll accept it. Do, do you want to, like, for the benefit of everyone listening, because, like, inclusionary zoning, like, it's a, you know, it's a loaded planning term. Like, what, what, is, what does it mean from your perspective? From my perspective, it means when uh, a developer is going to do a development wherever, there's a certain percentage yep. that needs to be provided as social housing. Yep. And yep. I say social rather than affordable because there's definitions out there that can be mixed and social is addressing the most disadvantaged in our community. So mm-hmm. I think it needs to be social because affordable could be a developer selling it off for a, a lower rate or something like that. But we need good quality, affordable rental housing, which is the social housing. So yeah. that percentage, you know, I'd like it to be 10%. But, you know, if it was 5%, that would be at least something. And it's not going to answer the huge, you know, it's not going to necessarily produce the 6,000 dwellings uh, that we need to grow by every year, yep. but it's, it will introduce, you know, possibly hundreds, which is a good start. One piece of the puzzle. Mm, exactly, mm. yes, one piece of the puzzle. Mm. And I suppose, you know, so much of, you know, that could be easily incentivised through the planning scheme and kind of tied to various incentivisations through the planning scheme. So from a state-based level, you know, that's, mm. that is a reform which is available. Yeah. I think uh, it can be incentivised, and I think that's what they're looking at at the moment. I suppose what I'm saying is that it just should be mandatory mm. <laughs> rather than having to provide, you know, that the council or whoever has to provide incentives back to the developer for it. Mm. 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 Yeah, it's... Like uh, certainly from our perspective, ten percent requirement for for you know social housing within a particular project would would entirely be achievable in the context of a broader development, particularly if it is a level playing field. It's factored in from day one, and I think too often, you know, the impacts are real if you've bought a particular site based on certain assumptions, and then you have legislative change, the impacts are real. That's not okay. (laughs) Um, And that's difficult. Mm. Um, And and I think, you know, to an extent, that's workable from a government perspective. You know, you could could put measures in place that that recognise that fact, Um, you know, for developers that genuinely projects were put in jeopardy because of any legislative change through that period. But I also think, you know, there's a hell of a lot of people that have land-banked Um, and have benefited significantly from land price increase over Mm. the last kind of 30 years that have windfall gains that they're sitting on. And, you know, this this is kind of one of my bugbears. There's too too many people sitting on significant uplifts um, that don't don't contribute enough back to the society from which they've extracted that value. 
Um, and, and too often it, it is the finger is pointed at the developer, um, you know, but, you know, as part of that broader development equation, you know, like it's, yes, it's a risk and reward re- equation and, and, and profit is derived out of that risk and reward equation, but margins are tight and, and increasingly becoming tighter, particularly in the space that we operate within, which is like we're trying to build really good quality buildings. So you are compressing margins down to the point that it is challenging to deliver projects. So, you know, the more you kind of levy that development process, you know, the more you put it under pressure, uh, you know, that, that land side of the equation, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to buy a property in Collingwood, you know, in the 80s for 400000 and it's now worth $20 million, <laughs> Uh, and, and you can sell that and walk away um, capital, capital gains tax-free, you, you know, there's, there's something a little bit wrong with that equation. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, I suppose the, the moral imperative is, is clear for a, in, an increased funding in needs-based housing, and increasingly the business case is beyond evident. Um, the glaring absence is, is just a lack of ongoing funding from a government perspective. It's both a state and federal level. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks, Laura.